It's a great pleasure uh, to be here today um, to talk to you a little bit about some of the research I did when I was a postdoc in WE's lab in Stanford. Um, and actually, it overlaps quite well with some historical. I was doing, at the time, I was doing some imaging of uh, bacterial uh, cells. And I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, historical insight into why, into, into Robert Hooke's uh, involvement in uh, bacterial cell uh, um, imaging and how it relates to what we're doing. And I think just to kind of echo what we've already said is that. Um, we were just looking at these beautiful pictures and, and um, we're really just doing the same thing today, right at the kind of at the, in, in, in research, in the same we're just doing exactly the same thing. We're trying to look and trying to understand the machinery of what's going on in, the, it, <coughs> um, in biology. And although I'm a physical scientist, it's a really exciting time for interdisciplinary research. I'm a physical chemist, but, we, but people in my laboratory come together, there's physicists and computer engineers and, 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 uh, and uh, biologists, and we'll come together, and biology is really giving us some really interesting questions to address, and super-resolution imaging is really finding its feet in that area. So just to kind of, again, to reiterate, this is a quote from, um, this is a quote from, from Richard Feynman, who's, in, who's uh, an incredible scientific orator, and he said at the time, he said, it's very easy to answer fundamental questions, uh, fundamental biological questions, you just look at the thing. And that's what we're trying to do, and that's what Robert Hooke was doing. It's what, uh, with, in fact, he was talking at the time about electron microscopy, which we'll hear about in a second. Um, but, uh, sorry, yeah, because Perfect, thank you. Um, he then went on to say this, which I quite like. He said, unfortunately, the present microscope sees at a scale which is a bit too crude. Make the microscope 100 times more powerful, and many problems in biology would be, very much made, would be made very much easier. I exaggerate, of course, but biologists would surely be very, would, would be very thankful to you, and they would prefer that to the criticism that they should use more mathematics. Um, so, we, as, as was said, we're, just, we're still just trying to find new ways of looking at the thing. So, this year, um, this, uh, well, the last year the, the Nobel Prize, as I said, went into super-resolution imaging to WE. Here's, here is he. Here's, a, here's an example of what uh, super-resolution microscopes look like nowadays. They're just much bigger and a bit more expensive than, than versions like this, but they do fundamentally the same thing. And there's a picture of me with WE uh, in Stanford. So, I'm going to give you a bit of historical context, and it's about the discovery of um, uh, bacteria, and it goes back to um, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, who was a Dutch cloth maker uh, operating in the 1600s, and he, was, uh, he wasn't a trained scientist, and he got, obviously used a loop to, kind of to examine the, the cloth in which he made. Um, and uh, at this time, he got interested in developing microscopes, although the term hadn't been coined there. And he, so this is an example of van Leeuwenhoek's microscope. This is a single spherical lens here, which is very different to the kind of compound microscope you see in front of you. Um, in fact, what you do is your, your lens in your eye acts as the second lens, at, which, is, which would be placed here in this microscope, to actually uh, form the image. And he started looking at various things and, and discovered bacteria. He found them, he found them everywhere. Um, he wrote letters to the Royal Society in Dutch. They had to be translated. Um, and I'll, I'll go on to say some, some comments. Uh, so this is the first uh, ever drawing of uh, bacterials, uh, bacterial cells. At the time, bacteria hadn't been coined. They called them animalcules. Uh, this is taken from the human mouth. He made comments about the fact that if you take, uh, if you scratch the, the, uh, the teeth of, uh, of old gentlemen, you find more of these animalcules than, than if you do it from young ladies. Uh, <laughs> some real experimental science there. Um, 
And he said at the time, he said to me, this to me among all the marvels that I've discovered is in nature the most marvelous of all. No greater pleasure has yet come to my eye than these spectacles of so many thousands of living creatures in a small drop of water moving among one another. It's pretty, isn't it? And uh, so allegedly, so I know this is the wrong picture now, I've learnt this today. <laughs> so allegedly this goes to, the, this is a great apocryphal story where this goes to, to, to Robert Hooke and he says, how dare this, this person who's not even a scientist come and tell me that I can't see these things. And so there's this apocryphal story later, about a decade after uh, the publication of Micrographia, he goes down to the Thames and gets a vial of water and comes back and puts it on his compound microscope. He can't see anything. And so Robert Hooke wrote, later he said, this. So I'm not sure if cynicism transcends 350 years, but, he, but I definitely see it as an Englishman. He said, I concluded therefore that either my microscope was not so good as that he had made use of, or that Holland might be more proper for the production of such little creatures <laughs> than England. So, uh, <laughs> so he didn't believe him. Um, and this obviously, so why am I telling you this? So, uh, microscopes now are not limited by engineering. It's not just a case of can we build a, a better uh, microscope, but they're actually limited by the theoretical limit, by physics. They're limited by the wavelength of light. Um, now, these, uh, this was made uh, uh, Antoine van Leeuwenhoek quite depressed, as you'd imagine, because he was convinced he could see these things. And said, he said, I suffer many contradictions and, contradictions, and of times here it's said that I do but tell fairy tales about the little animals. So I'm going to show you some real data taken by me in the, in the lab, and, and hopefully you can, there won't be any fairy tales. So, um, so the key, basically, Mike, uh, Hooke's microscope wasn't good enough, and that was originally to detect bacteria. But what we're doing now is we're not just detecting bacteria through their existence, we're actually trying to look inside them and try and understand the machinery inside of a cell and how it works, and how that spatial distribution of regulatory proteins leads to function. Uh, we're just asking how does the mechanics of the cell work, just like we were hearing before with Alan saying uh, that he just wanted to understand the machinery of, of how things work. So, sorry, I can't really see this. Um, so I'm going to give you an introduction to super-resolution imaging now, how this works. So, so, uh, so scientists like to do log plots, for anyone that's not a scientist. So if you imagine each one of these is a, is a, is a factor of 10 increase on the spatial, uh, like kind of, uh, so it's a log spatial scale. So up here we've got... Uh, 100 microns, which is about the thickness of a piece of paper, something like that. And then if we went up again, it would be you know, a millimeter and then a centimeter and then a meter. And as we go down in physical space, you end up with being about the size of a kind of eukaryotic cell, which is on the order of 10 microns. So a, 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 a human hair is about 50, to give you this kind of scale. Uh, down to about one micron, and that's roughly the size of bacterial cells, and we'll, uh, we'll, I'll show you some examples of that. Um, and then uh, if you go smaller again, you get these things called so-called, uh, uh, this is colloidal gold. If you go smaller, you get to the size of typical uh, of proteins in, in your body. And then smaller, you go to the kind of atomic, the, the, the scale of the atomic. And so if you, if you overlay on top of these spatial scales, the typical user that used to probe that spatial regime, basically you see it from the very big down to what's called the, the fraction limit, this fundamental limit. There's some innate graininess to light that you can't just keep magnifying and magnifying and magnifying and magnifying. At some point, there's just something that's blurry. And I'll show you an example of that in a second. And that's called the, the so-called uh, Abbe diffraction limit, which is, uh, which is approximately, for optical wavelengths of light, is about 250 nanometers, which is um, uh, much larger than, a, than the physical size of uh, individual proteins and, and, and individual molecules, which is actually where, which is the questions we're kind of interested in asking. So, so optical microscopy does great because you can see things changing, you can look at things in real time, seeing is believing, but we have this kind of limit. 
And at the other end, you have other tools which are very powerful um, at looking at high spatial uh, regimes, and we'll see that in a second, but quite often these are relatively abstract from, from the biological environment. So for instance, they can be at cryogenic temperatures, or they can be in ultra-high vacuums. But there's this kind of gap in the middle here, and this is where super-resolution imaging really is at the kind of precipice of trying to kind of uh, maintain some of the dynamic information you get from optical microscopy, but also gain this kind of order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude in, in, in spatial resolution. So you know how people normally complain that their problems aren't set in stone? Mine literally is. This is the, uh, this is, uh, this is the memorial of Ernst Abbe, who was a German optical physicist, who was the first person to work out that your ability to resolve an object D is equal to the wavelength of light divided by two times the numerical aperture of the objective. So to do a little bit of maths for everyone in the room, I promise I won't, there won't be too many equations. Uh, but basically, this, this number is about 1, this number is about 500. So on average, you get about 250 nanometers, which is just too big to resolve individual molecules. Um, so the trouble is that a lot of biological processes occur on a smaller scale. So what's the solution? So um, this, uh, although uh, WE and, and Eric's lab and, and uh, Stefan Hell's lab, they all won the Nobel Prize, the actual te the technique I'm going to talk about today is a technique called, um, which was developed simultaneously in three different labs. Uh, in Eric Betts' lab in Xiaowei Zhang's group in Harvard and in Sam Hess's uh, uh, group in the States. Um, they all work in the same way, and I'll explain the general principle. Um, but to really understand this, basically, we do exactly the same thing. We use, uh, we, in order to understand how we get this super resolution, you have to understand a little bit about optical imaging and fluorescence, and then what to think about imaging a single molecule, a single fluorescent molecule. And then finally, the ability to kind of modulate or control that uh, fluorescence intensity in a single molecule. And it's actually each one of these uh, has taken a lot of time and a lot of uh, research years and man hours to kind of to, to each make these refinements. It's only with these coming together that really has allowed us to make these measurements. So the first thing is fluorescence. So just like we saw in uh, in. In micrographia, uh, you, we're, using tr we're just using uh, the reflected light microscopy there. So we're just bouncing some light in the bottom. We're looking as we look with our eyes. In all of the imaging I'm going to talk about today, we use fluorescence, which is, which is very useful because we use it all the time in biology because it's highly specific. We can label individual parts of a cell. Um, it has an excellent signal to background because the wavelength of light we use to excite a fluorophore is different to the emission of wavelength of light comes out. So we excite with a blue light and red light comes out. And so therefore we just put a filter in the way and we ignore the red light and we can just look, sorry, we ignore the blue light and then we can just look at the red light. And so it allows us to have excellent signal to noise. So this is an example. This is the spindle apparatus. This is the machinery that drags apart your chromosomes in every single cell in your body when they divide. Uh, your chromosomes here are shown in blue. Um, and it, so this has been used in biology for a, a long, long time. It's continuous use. It's a very powerful tool. So this is, uh, this is my postdoc, Matty. Uh, and this is, uh, this is giving you an example. We use, uh, we use laser light in, a, in, a, in the lab, but the principle is exactly the same. So in this, this is here's an example of one of our microscopes. Uh, there's two lasers on here. There's a red and a blue one. And the, the, the uh, photography department that came in to want to take this picture made us put a load of dry ice in here so you can see that you can see the scattering <laughs> of the beam. You normally can't see that. And then we had to spend about a week cleaning everything afterwards. <laughs> um, but it, essentially, the, the principles of it are the same. We have a sample, which goes here, which in principle would go here. We have a, light, a white light source, which, uh, which would normally come from the side in, 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 in Robert's uh, uh, microscope here, as, as generated by the lasers. And then we have some way of detecting it. So we use a camera, uh, a, a modified, a sensitive uh, CCD camera, which is just the similar uh, to the cameras that are in your, your mobile phones. Um, and obviously, Hook used his eye, which um, is also a fantastic way of doing things. So 
So that's about fluorescence. If you imagine uh, thinking about a single molecule, right? So people like me, this is why, uh, this is why uh, uh, this, all of this was born out of kind of physical science. It was about people being interested in the fundamental. And the application that came out um, was unintended at the time. But if you imagine uh, thinking about single, this is a fluorescent protein. This was another Nobel Prize in 2008 for Roger Chen. Um, if you imagine saying, OK, well, what would that look like? So I've already told you, so actually when you, when you look at it on a microscope, uh, it's sometimes called, uh, it looks like a blob. And that's, if you speak to a, this is called a point spread function sometimes, it's sometimes called a transfer function or an impulse response, it's all the same thing. It's basically the, the blob that your microscope sees in response to a point source. And this, oh, I've already told you that the size of this is about 250 nanometers, this is dictated by the diffraction of light. But the physical size of this object is much smaller. It's about two nanometers. So if you drew it on a kind of approximate spatial scale, then basically it's like this big. So there's actually quite a large blurriness associated with uh, uh, an individual dye molecule. So, um, so we shine light on it. It emits light, um, which is, and it looks like a blob. Um, now, the, the, the key, um, the, the trick in super-resolution imaging is basically to say, as long as there's a single fluorophore emitting, as long as there's one, then actually what this is is really is a probability distribution function of the position of the object. So basically where it's brightest in the middle here is where it's most likely to be. And where it's over here, it's dim is where it's not. So now your, your spatial precision of where this molecule is emitting from is not defined by the periphery of the blob. It's defined by the center of the blob. And that's it. That's a Nobel Prize right there. That's all you had to do. <laughs> So this, this is termed superlocalization microscopy. And so this is, uh, I'll show you some, so if anyone's got a, uh, a, uh, um, uh, an iPhone, if you open up um, your uh, Google Maps app, uh, your, this little blue circle around your spot here is the, is the uncertainty with which Google can triangulate your position based upon the, your, the pinging of cell phone towers. But basically, we, we need a similar, we need an equivalent of certainty now, because we can't use this original blob now. We have to use... Uh, some measure of our uncertainty in the position of the object, so in the uncertainty in the center of that point spread function. So here's some real data. This is, this is uh, not taken by me, but this is taken by Justin Malloy's lab. Uh, so this is a cell, and this is a, what's called a GPCR protein. This was another Nobel Prize for Brian Kabilka. Uh, this, is how you're, this is how you see, this is how you smell. This, this, these, these family of proteins are incredibly important, and they're existing on the surface of a cell here. And so this is a movie. Um, so what you can see here is each one of these blobs is an individual protein diffusing on the surface of a cell. Um, and what you can see, hopefully, is that they're kind of moving around. And that you can imagine for each one of these, I could go through and I could fit the center position of that. And I could work out the position of the object to a greater degree than the blob. Right? And so this, to give you an idea, this is, you know, this is uh, 10 microns. Uh, so a, a, a hair would be about this wide. Right? And so, so that, that, that's, that's, the, that's what we call the diffraction limited image. Uh, you can also extract some incredibly powerful, I just put this in there because this is just so cool. This is the reason that I got into bit, this kind of research. This is, a, this is work from Paul Selvin's lab. Uh, and what he did, is, so this is, a, this is a protein called a myosin. And these, these are walker proteins. They walk along your cytoskeletal proteins called actin in your cells. They literally transport cargo. They walk along. And this is real data taken via this technique. And each one of these little steps here is, the, is they, put a, they put a fluorescent molecule on each one of these feet. And you can actually see these things processing in your, in, your, in your body. And this is how we move around, for instance, uh, low concentrations of uh, ions and potassium and things like in your cell. Uh, it's very, very cool data. Now, that's fine for super localizing, looking at individual molecules. But you can imagine at some point these things are going to start to overlap. 
And when they overlap, we can't use that trick of looking at the center position of the point spread function. So here's an example of what's called the, the Rayleigh resolution limit. So this is two things at uh, which we would say, if these get any closer than that, it'd be very difficult to say where one is and where uh, the, the next one is. Here, we might say, uh, okay, well, there's, there's one object under here, but do we say there's two here? Do we say there's two that it becomes harder? So the key, the way to trick this is basically to, is to have control of the fluorescence emission of these objects. So if you could imagine turning some of these on, on and off, you could sacrifice temporal resolution to gain higher spatial resolution. I'll show you some data of how we actually do that. So this is the big idea. This is all you need to know of how these techniques work. So we start off with a diffraction-limited object. That's then imaged onto a, a recording device, typically an EMCCD. If you imagine drawing a line profile through this, you can extract a distribution function. You can then fit that to some fire knowledge of your point spread function. We typically use a two-dimensional Gaussian. It doesn't have to be. This isn't important. It's just basically we're looking for the center. This is the mass that allows us to extract parameters like A here, which corresponds to the height of this blob, uh, W here, which corresponds to the width of this blob, and then C, this C term here, which corresponds to the center. And if you remember, that's how we know where the model clearly is. So what we can do is we can take that original blob and we can reconstruct it. We can redraw it with the computer with a width defined not by the original periphery of the point spread function, but by the uncertainty in the center position. And you can imagine if I turn that off, and then I repeat this over and over and over, what happens is you end up, over time, building up the smiley face. But if you got it all at once, you couldn't see that. And, you know, and I like to think that if you, if you spend enough time in the lab, and you work late enough, and you work hard enough, you definitely see smiley faces in your data. And because we had <laughs> such a great talk earlier, from, uh, I thought it was good to have. Uh, Right, so, um, so how do you turn a molecule off? I'm a chemist, so I always like to show some chemical structures. It's not important. It's just the idea is that we have multiple ways of modulating fluorescence emission of single molecules. And actually, a lot of development in the field is actually going into that. It's saying, can we think of innovative ways to be able to turn the fluorescence emission on and off? And if we can turn it on and off faster, quicker, better, what that allows us to do is get uh, uh, better temporal resolution, which means we can answer more fundamental questions in, uh, for biological problems. So the problem I was looking at in WE's lab was uh, that of uh, uh, looking at the spatial distribution of regulatory proteins in bacterial cells. So this is a, um, this bacteria is called Colobacter crescentus. It's a bacteria that lives in rock pools in North America. Uh, bacteriologists, it's interesting for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, it actually, so, so uh, bacteriologists use this as a model to study uh, asymmetry. So if you look at E. coli or some other bacteria you're probably familiar with, they're very symmetric. These molecules aren't. So the, sorry, these bacteria aren't. So let me just walk you through their life cycle. So basically these, these Colobacter crescentus molecules, they have a flagellum. That flagellum rotates and it pushes them around the rock pools in which they live. And then at some point in their life cycle, that flagellum falls off and it forms a stalk. That stalk secretes a glue that sticks it to the rock, and then basically it becomes a baby-making machine. It generates what's called a nascent flagellated cell. This is a daughter cell, and this whole thing swims off. And because, this, because it has this asymmetry, this innate asymmetry, it's a kind of very simple model to study. Uh, uh, there must be some protein underlying in this, in, in this bacteria in a very simple model that, that, can, that encode for these processes. And you can imagine the complexity of, say, your hand Right, that's very complicated. This is much simpler. So if we can try and understand how the spatial asymmetry and position of molecules affects function in bacteria, we can then scale it up to more, complica to more complicated um, uh, biology. 
So um, it's interesting, that's why it's interesting biologically. It's interesting photophysically because it's small. It's only about 500 nanometers wide. It's about one to two microns long. So if I overlay on top of that the typical size of a, of a diffraction-limited object, of the, the best you can see, you can see it really doesn't take many of these things in, the, in one of these cells to be able to, to not be able to see very much. So now I'll show you some real data and actually some, some discoveries we made. Um, so the first is on, um, is on the... Uh, uh, the, the way that Colobacter segregates its DNA. So we all have DNA, bacteria have DNA too. They have a single circular chromosome, which is about a thousand times the length of the cell. So to give you an idea, this is an electron micrograph uh, taken a while ago now, uh, of the DNA of uh, E. coli molecule. And to give you an idea, that's roughly the size of the cell. So it's really kind of compacted in there. And so there must be some efficient way for bacteria to be able to segregate that genetic material into the bit of the cell that's going to become the new cell, otherwise it would be uh, ultimately uh, uh, fruitless and wouldn't occur. Um, there would be no genetic uh, selection pressure for it. So in Colobacter, there's a process called the PAR system, and I won't bore you with the details, but essentially this, is, uh, this, is, um, this, was the, this was the problem that was presented to me. This is why biology is great. Um, uh, I'm not a biologist, but uh, they, always, they present you with really interesting problems. So this, was a, this is a time lapse of a single cell, and this green protein here is a protein called PAR-A. This is as good, and so this is over like five, and this, um, this is over, this is a time lapse of a single cell over, say, 25 minutes. And basically you can see as this, uh, this red blob here you can think of as the site of newly replicated DNA in a single bacterial cell. And what you see is it starts off as one blob and then forms two blobs, and then that second blob is translated to the, the other end of the cell, and then this is, this is the point at which the cell would divide, or start to divide, when the DNA for the new bit of the cell has been translocated. Um, and at the same time, there's this kind of green cloud that retracts. And so the first question is, can we see something that's obscured by the diffraction limit? Is there anything going on under here that we can't see very well? And I, if there wasn't, then I probably wouldn't be telling you the story. But uh, this is, uh, so the way we do this is we exploit an inherent property of, uh, this is a, a, a protein called yellow fluorescent protein. We fuse the yellow fluorescent protein next to the protein we're interested in looking at. And then we make it uh, undergo a process called power-dependent um, active intermittency, or just call it blinking. So each one of these is, um, so th each one of these is a single bacterial cell. And this is data taken, and each one of these blobs here is a single molecule of fluorescent protein stuck next to the molecule I care about, where I want to know where it is. And you can imagine for each one of these things, I could go through and I could localize that center position and I can reconstruct an image to see, okay, well, what did this really look like uh, at the super resolution level? Um, and so this is an example of the diffraction-limited object. Here's a bunch of cells. You can see that we see this kind of green cloud again and this two, these two red blobs. But when you turn on the super resolution imaging, you basically see these, these linear fibers that run along the whole length of the cell. So uh, these are about 50 nanometers in size. Um, uh, this takes a time. It took us about 60 seconds to acquire this. We can do this much faster now. Um, and so there's an example of something that was just obscured. It was there the whole time. We just couldn't see it very well. Um, and so this was when I was in Stanford, this was my... Um, my, my uh, office mate referred to this as my amazing grace plot because he said, I was blind and now I can see. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is the same trick fused to three different proteins in the cell. And basically you can see here that when you turn on super res, you can see, so here's one protein, PAR-A, which is responsible for DNA segregation. Here's a separate protein that binds to DNA, double-stranded and single-stranded DNA called HU2. 
And here's a third cytoskeletal protein called uh, MREB. Now, the names aren't important, but, but what you basically can see is that you can see this huge variation in comparison to the diffraction limit. And this is really allowing bacteri bacteriologists to answer some fundamental questions. Okay, well, these spatial distributions, what effect? Can we disrupt these? Can we, I mean, you can imagine we haven't got, we, we haven't got this far, but if you now know the mechanism by which bacteria can segregate the DNA, you can start to ask questions of can we disrupt it? And would that be, for instance, a new class, a whole class of antibiotic? Um, which isn't based upon the kind of traditional way of just kind of mutating things or just doing random drug screening. So finally, I wanted to do the most sophisticated version of the microscope that we've been kind of playing with, uh, which uh, is doing it in 3D. Everyone likes things in 3D, right? Try and sell you 3D TVs and things. Uh, so the way, this is, this is a really good example of how interdisciplinary this environment is. So this, uh, we use a modified, we have to play a trick, the fact that biology occurs in three dimensions, but what you're normally seeing is a two-dimensional projection of a three-dimensional object. And so this technology came out of Raphael Pustin's lab in the University of Colorado. Um, it's actually developed, he's an optical engineer, and he was at, this is actually developed for um, uh, uh, adaptive cruise control. That was his application. So the idea there is you're driving behind someone on the motorway and you want the car to maintain a certain distance and you have the same problem. You're taking a two-dimensional image and you want to get three-dimensional information. Now, it turns out it's much easier just to have two cameras and do trigonometry, so you don't need to do this trick. <laughs> but we worked, we worked out that you can, you can hijack that and you can, uh, you can use this technique. And so basically it's a technique which re-engineers the standard points per function of a microscope. So rather than having one blob, you have two blobs, and those blobs rotate about each other as a function of their axial position. And so you can see basically through space, they tr it traces out a double helix, and so we call this the double helix point spread function. Um, so I won't bore you with the, the details of this, but um, you can, these are, it's basically, uh, this would be your standard microscope. You have two molecules here. You, this is where you would normally put your camera. Uh, you can see two blobs, and then once it goes through our optical wizardry, it turns those one blobs into two blobs, and the angle between them determines their orientation. So here's uh, some real data again. This is some colobacter cells. Um, so hopefully what you can see here is before when you saw one blob, now you see two blobs. And if you look very carefully, the angle of those are changing. And so that, what that's doing, that's encoding X, Y, and Z positional information. And we can feed that all into the computer, and we can say, draw a picture for us of like the orientation of all these molecules. And so. So this is a this is the, so this is a two-color 3D live cell super-resolution image of bacterial uh, of a bacterial cell. This is Colobacter. So in in uh, in gray here is uh, is the membrane of the bacteria, um, and in uh, and in uh, this is a movie it will play in a second. And in red here there's a cytoskeletal protein called crescentin. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to rotate round in three dimensions of this protein. Hopefully you should be able to see it kind of uh, moving uh, kind of being stuck to the inner membrane of the bacterial cell. And then I'm going to regenerate what that image would look like given the standard point spread function. And so you can really see here that like, we're really being able to see qu some questions about these things going through the vision scepter. You can ask questions about, are these, is this protein really stuck to the inner leaflet of the bacterial cell? And you can see particularly in Z here, so this is the, the, your, the, the point spread function, uh, the, what's called the axial point spread function, the 3D ability of your uh, microscope. This is, this, is, this is the theoretical limit, right? This is not uh, some limit of we, if we bought a bit more expensive objective, that's limited by physics. So we're really being able to kind of resolve things that we couldn't see before. And just to give you a kind of flavor, typically we have a resolution limit of around 20 nanometers here, which if you remember is a kind of an order of magnitude slightly better than, than the diffraction limit. And in fact, we're, we're pushing that even further at the moment. 
You can also have some fun. You can ask some questions about uh, where you can compute things like the central cell axis here. So that's what's shown in, in cyan. And you can see that this, this, this crescentin molecule is actually banking on the inner membrane of the cell. So you really can actually, this was kind of expected, uh, but, but no one had ever kind of shown this before. And you can extract some kind of quantitative data based upon that about the thickness of the, of the cell wall and such. So that's all I really wanted to tell. I wanted to give you a flavor of, uh, of super-resolution imaging and just the idea that basically um, you, it, by super initially what you can do is you can super-localize a molecule. And if you uh, build that up over time, you can, that can be used to generate a super-resolution image. You can then perform uh, multicolor uh, super-resolution images in live bacterial cells. Um, and you can gain information that you couldn't necessarily see before. Uh, and that's, I use the PAR-A example for that. And then you can also extend that into three dimensions uh, by, by imaging protein superstructures relative to the cellular membrane. Um, and just really to go, just to re-emphasize that there's, there's still plenty of room at the bottom. And it's by, by studying the behavior of individual molecules that we can gain a fundamental understanding. And biology has a, has a plethora of really interesting questions to kind of uh, answer those. So with that, um, like I said, all of the work I spoke about today uh, was all the bacterial imaging that was all done in WE's lab in collaboration with Lucy Shapiro. Um, but now I've moved to Cambridge, I have new collaborators and we're doing even more exciting things and I'm very happy to answer any questions you may have about it and thank you very much for your kind attention.